This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Beyond Politics on WKXL, podcast wherever your casts are cast. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host Matt Robeson, and we're very happy today to welcome as our special guest, Congressman Peter Welch from Vermont. Peter is a chief deputy whip of the House Democratic Caucus, member of the Democratic Steering and Policy Committee. He serves on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the House Committee on Energy and Commerce. And I was honored when I was a congressman to call Peter, my brother and colleague, and we're still good friends. Peter, welcome to Beyond Politics. Hey, Paul, it's so nice to be with you. It's yeah. really good to be with you. It is good. You know, we're, uh, many of my former colleagues are coming on our show, and it's, uh, it's really a great time to have important discussions because you're in the middle of a very exciting time, to say the least, because we're still reckoning with the fallout of the insurrection on January 6th. You're on the Intelligence Committee. You see the classified details of intel. Uh, we've heard from uh, extremism experts like Alan Silberberg, who says that there are ties between the Russians and the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on the 6th. And we know that the Russians continue to use social media platforms to divide us, to push conspiracy theories and mess with our democracy. Now, we didn't see the hacking into state voter rolls that we saw in 2016 this year, but we still continue to see a lot of Russian manipulation. How how concerned are you? about the role of Russia manipulating us through social media. Well, I'm, I'm quite concerned about it. But, you know, in all candor, I'm much more concerned about how domestically uh, the president embraced that as a tactic. Uh, so we know, uh, and this is true since the last election, 2016, uh, that the Russian goal is to spread misinformation. They understand how powerful uh, social media can be basically to spread false narratives, uh, big lies. And they've done that very aggressively. And of course, in the 2016 election, they uh, favored Donald Trump and peddled a lot of uh, conspiracy theories about uh, Hillary Clinton. And that was bad. It was an attack on our electoral system. Uh, the president, as you know, uh, was very warm to Putin, despite that, didn't even ask him about it, really. Uh, so that that is a real threat to the, the principle that Americans make the decision about who their leadership is without interference from foreign players. But in 2020, it was a different story. I mean, Russia was up to its old stuff. Uh, we know that. Uh, but the uh, intelligence that we have seen is that the Russian interference, while it was there, while they were doing their thing, uh, it was nothing compared to the big lie that was promoted by president by President Trump himself, which he started in advance of the actual voting by asserting, among other things, that paper ballots were illegitimate. And he got he got Attorney General Barr to say that they were paper ballots were were bogus. And absolutely no evidence of that, but it began the drumbeat 
of the Trump claim uh, uh, that it was a fake election, uh, that it was a rigged election that ultimately culminated in the attack on the Capitol in January 6th. So I really think that the focus here should be much more domestic because uh, we have met the enemy and, and it is us. And it was the Trump effort that did so much more damage uh, to our democratic tradition of A, peaceful transfer of power, B, renunciation of violence as a means of political persuasion. And uh, unfortunately in this election, uh, former President Trump embraced both those tactics culminating in January 6th. Hey, Congressman Matt Robeson here. So it sounds like part of what you're suggesting is that we have these external threats, right? And we, we just are on the heels of the revelations at the end of 2020 that dozens of US government agencies were penetrated by Russian hackers. And of course, we all know about the threats, both financial, reputational, and manipulative that, that those forces pose to individuals, to businesses, and to democratic institutions. But we also have this juxtaposition of the January 6th insurrection and the GameStop saga, where we saw this mishmash of manipulation through social media, um, somewhat democratic forces online, uh, potential manipulation by foreign forces. So what concerns you more from your perch? I mean, part of what you do is you deal with intelligence and you think about policy responses of the US government. Are you more concerned about the platforms, the social media platforms and the potential for manipulation through those platforms? Or do you want to focus more on plugging the leaks externally, um, things that we do to play defense when it comes to hacking cybersecurity or maybe even offense to deter that kind of intrusion into our country? Well, Matt, it's all of the above. I mean, you just laid out um, in, in, in great detail uh, the threats that we face. But there, the, in, in what you described, there were three, really. One is a foreign interference. Now, in the past, there would be unanimous bipartisan support to take all steps necessary to thwart interference in American politics by foreign actors. That, that was agreed upon. Trump didn't do that. Um, he basically wink, wink, nod, nod. He was supportive of, of Putin. So rather than have a united front to stop that foreign interference, uh, and rather than have a policy where we regard foreign interference in our election uh, as a serious breach that requires probably significant retaliation. Uh, the president basically denied it and accommodated it. So in the Biden administration, my hope is that we'll unite in, in our opposition. And that would include taking measures to thwart uh, uh, hacking, uh, in interference in elections. That's the goal. But the second issue is domestic. Uh, you know, President Trump embraced the big lie. He used not only social media platforms, but Fox News, One News Nation, Newsmax, these uh, news sources, so-called news sources that really were promoting him as a business model. And that is a real challenge for democracy because the President Trump really busted the norms of public discourse, uh, uh, particularly, in, as I say, it culminated uh, in, in January 6th. But that, that's on us. That's on us as a country and what we're going to 
uh, do and not do. And then third, of course, GameStop, um, that, that is just pumping and dumping. I mean, that's the normal that, that uh, folks in a market trying to make money quick and uh, who knows who the winners and losers are going to be in there, but it had nothing to do obviously with the productive economy, right? And then we got into this debate where uh, every, everyone from AOC on one side to Ted Cruz on the other came to the defense and affected the small traders on Robinhood. But whether uh, the small traders need and should use Robinhood is fine, but do we really think that the economic future of the United States and the jobs that we need, the secure incomes that uh, working class people need is gonna be solved uh, by getting in on game stock or getting out of it at the right moment? I mean, I think that's, a, my view, a sideshow from the focus we need to have on uh, better jobs, better wages. So let's talk, just continuing to talk about security. Peter, it's become painfully apparent in recent months, as you have outlined here, that our domestic threats and the concern we have about violent extremists, conspiracy theorists who have used uh, the power of the democratized Internet uh, to spread their message, present a clear and present danger to the democracy. Now, you voted to remove Marjorie Taylor Greene from committees because she espoused violence against the Speaker of the House and promoted dangerous conspiracy theories. Um, and she may or may not represent where the Republican Party is really going. Do you think she should be removed from Congress entirely? And, and how then do we deal with 139 Republican members who voted to overturn the results of the election based on phony conspiracy theories and a big lie even after the Capitol insurrection and and now basically want to deny that that's what they did and their whole approach to January 6th is ah forget about it I mean right. it's like an episode of the Sopranos it's a, well you put it you put it very well you know the reason I voted uh to have her removed from those committees is number one her advocacy of violence that's not about a her opinion, even her, but from my perspective, totally wacky opinions about, you know, space lasers starting uh, the wildfires and other crazy things. If uh, a district, a congressional district wants to elect that person, uh, that's their decision. And frankly, weird as the ideas may be, I'm not going to propose to uh, remove a person because of their opinions. But where they're advocating violence, that's different. Uh, that's not about free speech. That's about the advocacy of violence that was utilized, uh, like on January 6th, to get your way. And that's a, that's a bridge too far. And the institution, my view, has to self-police. And of course, the Republicans removed a member uh, from a committee, uh, Steve King, last session, as you know, because he was talking about white nationalism. And here you have Marjorie uh, Taylor Greene, who's talking about that and a lot of other things. But what she literally was doing was saying things like a bullet in the head uh, to Speaker Nancy Pelosi would be a quick way to get rid of her. She was posing with a uh, semi-automatic weapon uh, saying she'll take care of the squad with uh, AOC, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib kind of in the gun sights. So is there a place for that uh, in political discourse? 
uh, in the United States Congress for a person to be advocating violence? My view is no. Uh, so this uh, disciplinary measure, I think, was appropriate. And I'm sorry that uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, basically spent more time on Liz Cheney because she voted for impeachment than she did on Marjorie Taylor Greene, who advocated for homicide. So can I let me just follow up for a moment, because, um, you know, clearly the response of of uh, Kevin McCarthy to what happened, he, he says uh, volumes about the deep and dysfunctional split in the Republican Party. They're trying to figure out whether or not their party is is um, is the party of, of wackos or more or, or further wackos. But that's one split. But. You know, there is an argument, isn't there, that what Marjorie Taylor Greene said uh, was prior to her congressional service. And that was up to the voters of uh, uh, of her district to to decide. Um, And since then, she she sort of renounced some of that speech. And doesn't that play into whether or not what kind of uh, punishment uh, should be or could be? meted out. What were your thoughts about about that issue? Well, I think that's relevant, Paul. I think the fact that a person runs and has these these crazy views like basically starting the fires uh, in the the voters of that district elect that person, uh, then I think there's got to be significant deference given to the voters of that district for the decision that they made. But with Taylor Greene, what set it apart for me for me was I, she advocated some of these uh, uh, support, support for the violence, uh, even post-election. And that's a bridge too far. Uh, you know, it's a very significant action on the part of Congress to basically strip a person of committees. Now, the Republicans did it under uh, Kevin McCarthy, but they did it to one of their own. And there's a concern, obviously, that if the majority is removing somebody, then when they're not the majority, the same thing is going to happen to them. And I am concerned about that, uh, quite frankly. But the distinction for me that is really important is the advocacy of violence, as opposed to the advocacy of an opinion that is not in the mainstream, or from my perspective, totally lacking in credibility, like the conspiracy theories or the space laser stuff. I mean, that you know, you know we can deal with that in Congress, but the violence we can't. And there's no place for that in a democratic society. So what about the 139 people who voted uh, to against certifying the election? Um, what what ought to happen? What ought to happen there? I mean, we've seen some donor flight from from those folks. But what ought to happen? Should Congress discipline? Should the majority discipline those people who voted for the big lie? Well, I. Uh, I'm very sad about that, uh, because the extraordinary thing in our democracy has been that every four years is a peaceful transfer of power. You know, at the inauguration, uh, Senator Blunt, the Republican from Missouri, who was a chair, one of the co-chairs of the committee, it really made a great statement about this. He said in 1980, when Ronald Reagan was being inaugurated, he said, we're doing something that on the one hand is totally mundane and the other totally extraordinary. It's mundane because every four years since 1789, we've done it, no big deal. He said, it's extraordinary because every four years since 79, 18, 1789, we've done it. 
a peaceful transfer of power. That's unbelievable. So Trump challenged that. And it's a real sadness for me, as I'm sure it is for you, because you know some of the folks in the Republican Party, they're really good people. Uh, but they're under an enormous amount of pressure from their vote, their Trump base. And, you know, I'm sorry that uh, so many, from my perspective, buckled where it's on the question of the peaceful transfer of power, that there was license given to Trump to challenge that. So I feel very sad about it. I don't think it's a practical matter that Congress can take direct action against them on that. Uh, each of us can decide who we can work with, uh, depending on what they did. But I do think that ultimately this has got to be a decision by voters. It can be made also by the behavior of some of these donors, like the corporations that are renouncing support for uh, the folks who voted basically to overturn the election. So there's a lot of levers out there where it's not just internal to Congress, because obviously I'm on the record as opposing those who voted for overturning the election. But there's other outside factors that would, I think, have a real influence on my colleagues where they saw that the price was being paid for crossing a line that has never been crossed since 1789. Let's just change gears real quick here um, for our national listeners who may not know Congressman Welch. You, you are well known for your work on climate and energy. You're a member of the House Committee mm -hmm. that handles those two particularly uh, important salient uh, issues. Mm -hmm. And you were there for the last time we really dealt with climate in a substantive way in the House in 2009, when we managed to muscle through a cap and trade bill only to see it die in the Senate. Now, once again, we have a tricky situation where the American public clearly favors action on carbon and clean energy, but there are political realities, not least of which is the upwards of $5 trillion in spending on COVID relief when it's all said and done that we've just undertaken in the last year. And look, whatever one thinks of Larry Summers' watershed op-ed, there is some limit to how much political and fiscal room there is to do big new things on issues like climate. So what in your mind from your leadership position on this issue is really practically possible? What should the focus be when it comes to what you get done on climate in the house this year? Well, first of all, you know, the Summers article is about the uh, $1.9 uh, trillion, <clears throat> um, I don't call it stimulus, but COVID relief package. Uh, climate change is really about two things. One, it is obviously about reducing carbon emissions and uh, avoiding a catastrophe, the catastrophe uh, that awaits our planet, or actually that we're living through right now. But it's also, with the right approach, a way of creating jobs and building our economy. I mean, the, the fact is that we for too long have been denying the existence of climate change, fearing the impact on jobs. Well, the new jobs are being created by those entrepreneurs and by those policies uh, that are providing a solution to what is an existential problem. And, you know, a, a, entrepreneurs have frequently been successful because they've seen a need and devised a way to address that need. And public policy can also facilitate that. And the climate change policies we can have, uh, obviously are support for renewable energy, it's fixing up our grid, um, it's investing in uh, energy efficiency where all of the jobs tend to be local and good trades jobs. Um, it is in 
benefits of using the internet of things uh, to be able to manage thermostats. You know, my wife and I were away for a couple of days, turned it down on the internet, turned it, turned it back up before we got home and came in a warm and cozy house. That's real efficiency. So there's so many opportunities that are associated with the full embrace of taking on the challenge that I don't put uh, the, the, the challenge, the, the, the steps we have to do on climate change into the category of like deficit spending. It's like uh, economic opportunity. So um, we have just a few moments left. We're, we're down to our last two minutes, but I'm curious, uh, President Biden has proposed, and it looks like through budget reconciliation, a large part of his $1.9 trillion uh, relief package um, is going to is going to is going to pass. Um, there's a, a growing some growing concern that passing that is going to crowd out other necessary investments. Um what, where do you where do you uh, fall on that? Do you think that the case for for dealing with climate change and energy efficiency and entrepreneurship is so compelling that we can do both uh, COVID relief and the investments that are necessary uh, in climate change in light of deficits and um, and and budgetary concerns? Well, I think uh, uh, number one, I think we have to acknowledge uh, that we have to make a decision here, a choice. And the choice is, are we willing to borrow money in order to prop up the economy now and avoid a much deeper uh, and more prolonged recession later? And my view is we have to err on the side of stabilizing things. This is a once in a century event. But number two, <clears throat> having said that, I think we gotta be careful. Um, and I think that the, the, the relief package, like for instance, on the checks, the president is adjusting it. So instead of going to 75,000, you know, there are a lot of folks who have family incomes of up to 150,000. <clears> they hadn't lost their jobs and they really didn't need a check. But on the other hand, there's a lot of folks, frontline workers, folks in grocery stores, uh, that it's been brutal for them. Uh, and they've had additional expenses to try to be able to go to work and they don't make uh a significant wage. And those folks, I think, are the ones who really do need the checks. And I'm delighted that the president is really trying to target there. And that's an acknowledgement that we got to be careful um, and targeted in addressing the needs of people who need it, not the, need, not the desires of people who don't. Congressman then, Peter Welch, okay. we're going to have to stop you there. It's okay. beyond politics. It's been great to have you. I'm Paul Hodes with co-host Matt Robeson. Peter, we'll have you back and we'll continue the conversation. Folks, All we'll right. see you later. Really appreciate it. Welcome back to Beyond Politics. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host Matt Robeson, broadcast on KXL and podcast wherever your podcasts are cast. We talked with Congressman Peter Welch about conspiracies and social media and Russian hacking and the state of our democracy. And Matt Robeson, uh, fascinating insights from somebody from inside the Beltway. But what's a good citizen to think? What's a good citizen to do? Where are we? And are our threats uh, domestic? 
Are they foreign? Are they both? And are there different strategies for dealing with the cyber threats to our democracy from foreign actors and domestic actors? It's a really complicated problem. It's a combination of all of the above, along with algorithms and technologies that have escaped lab containment, kind of like the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park or proof of the law of unintended consequences. What the congressman was suggesting, and this definitely resonates for me, is that yes, we have external threats. We know this. I sound like the Saturday Night Live bit, doctor, we know this. We know this. We know conclusively that starting even before the run-up to the 2016 election, there was a concerted effort on the part of our adversaries, our enemies, I'm talking mostly about you, Russia, to interfere with our democracy, to interfere with our discourse, to sow discontentment, to sow strife. They're sort of like the Hydra of the Marvel movies. They're, they, they had an agenda to try to reap war and discord in America. So you had that pressure. You also have the rise of internal domestic groups, extremist groups, often allied and overlapping with white supremacist groups. And they also, we know this, saw a, a burgeoning during the middle of the 2010s. This also coincided with some reaction to the election of the first African-American US president, as well as the encouragement they received from the verbiage used by our next president, Donald Trump. And then the third factor that I would point to, so we have the foreign, we have Russia, let's, let's put that under the Russia heading. There's foreign, there's domestic extremist groups, and it's been well documented that there are links between the two, including running through the January 6th insurrection. But then there's a third factor. This is the one that falls under the technology unintended consequences heading. And that is the role of social media and innovations that were made in the late aughts, starting around 2009, crossing over through 2012 on Twitter and Facebook to allow more sharing of information. The retweet feature that was introduced on Twitter in the late 2000s and the share feature, which was introduced on Facebook in 2012. So the upshot of all of this is this toxic brew of malevolent foreign actors, malevolent domestic actors, and new technologies that enable the spread of malicious information, disinformation, and bot activity, non-human information, and all of that has created an incredibly warping effect that does not go well, does not play nicely with a multicultural democracy like we are supposed to have. So what's, you know, what we're, what, what, what we're looking at is the, the, the fact the humans have created tools which have outstripped our ability to control those tools. Now, in the in the old days of human civilization, we created the wheel 
and the wheel begat the cart and the cart begat the ability to carry stuff around from the fields um, to the huts. And we we created arrowheads and affixed the arrowheads to shafts of wood, which then enabled us to run after our prey and spear them and feed our families. So humans are ingenious at creating tools. You know, I mean, when when humans discovered fire and uh, there were some uncontrolled, unintended consequences. We we burned down our huts um, when when things got out of control. And it strikes me that the last 11 years in human history have witnessed uh, our huts burning down. We've created this tool, this Internet thing that's out there in the ethers, in the cyberspace. And I'm being a little bit you know, humorous about it, but, but, but nobody, you know, I mean, nobody really understands how this information flies around and where it comes. And nobody thinks about when they use the internet, that there are these giant, giant, giant warehouses filled with machines, these servers that are requiring huge amounts of energy, by the way, to keep them cool. And the information is flowing through those machines in some mysterious web that connects us in these Dick Tracy models of Apple iPhones on your wrist and on your phone and in your computers and have and but have outstripped our ability to control them. So what it means for democratic institutions is really profound at, at a very basic personal level. We're all suffering from what we could call uh, attention uh, deficit disorder in a way, because the, the, the addiction that we've quickly developed to these tools takes our attention uh, and, 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 and is, is hard to resist. So how do we separate truth from fiction? And if we can't separate truth from fiction, what does it mean for the ability of nefarious actors, whether it's a foreign power or domestic terrorists from skewing our entire thought process? And, and if you're looking at the insurrection of January 6th, aren't we looking at kind of this giant cult like addiction to that built on fear and anger that propelled a, a, an attack on our democracy. So I want to take the middle part of that in order to get to the last part, the middle part being how do we separate truth from fiction? When we engage in this discussion, we allow ourselves to be pushed by whataboutists into the princess bride dilemma. You remember the movie, The Princess Bride? You remember Wallace Shawn? Clearly, I cannot choose the wine in front of you. Clearly, I cannot choose the wine in front of me. And the, the trap you end up with is, well, if you're going to distinguish truth from fiction, someone is going to have to do that. That means you're going to have to put into the hands of a fallible human being with whom you may not agree 
the power to decide what is real and what is not real. And that seems like a really uncomfortable idea. And I am very sympathetic with that. However, let's set that aside for a second, that dilemma about should we have a super jury? And by the way, this exists, right? This exists for Facebook. They have a super jury to decide who is on Facebook, who is not on Facebook. They're, you know, they decided on the fate of Donald Trump. They decide what is truth and what is not truth. So this exists, but let's put that aside for one second. We can all agree that we may have different feelings about human beings doing that, but we probably all share the same feeling about machines doing it for us. You alluded a moment ago to this image of vast warehouses of servers, com machines, computers. For a long time, I thought that the analogy, the movie analogy, I'll make another movie analogy here, was to the Terminator. Skynet is here, the machines are here to destroy us. It, I recently realized that that's the wrong movie analogy for where we've ended up with social media. The right movie analogy is the one you were suggesting. It's the matrix. Do you remember the matrix? Do you remember the vast fields as Lawrence F Fishburne intoning, I've seen them, vast fields where human beings are grown and their batteries and et cetera. The point of that being that the machines are not here to wipe us out. The machines are here to use us for what we provide. What social media platforms want, what they are here to get from us is our engagement, as you said, our attention. And the very first step is to take the arbitration of truth and of our brains and of our attention. It, maybe we can't agree that it should be in the hands of a select panel of human beings, but we should definitely agree that it should not be in the hands of the machines. The first thing we need to do is take it out of the hands of the machines. And there are policy proposals to do this. For one thing, we can stop incentivizing people to share explosive, memeable content by doing what's called demetrification. We can stop letting people see, oh, this has had 2,000 shares. This is great. I'm getting a dopamine hit because I'm so popular. We can get rid of that function. It doesn't have to be part of social media. We can kill all the unverified accounts. By the way, these are not my suggestions. These are from, these are from experts. These are from social psychologists. Get rid of the bots. Get, make real human beings verify who they are. And we can add some friction, some sand in the gears of the system so that you are disincentivized to share things, to overshare things, and especially to share bad information. We can take the control out of the hands of the machines and put it back into the hands of human beings who are applying a little bit more individual thought. That is what I would propose with all of my movie analogies as the first step, maybe not the last, but the first. Your thoughts? The government shall make no law respecting the right of free speech. That's an essential in American jurisprudence and our political system. You're talking about censorship. You're talking about you're talking about censorship of the free market. These these companies started small and have grown because they were efficient at uh, dealing in the free market of our capitalist system. They grew because they got customers. They grew uh, organically and have now become, yes, important, but they're still 
private enterprises. Uh, people can choose whether to sign on or sign off and to participate or not participate. Now, of course, we're just coming to learn that the way they really make their money is by taking our information in ways we don't know about and reselling it and repackaging it and addicting us. But putting that aside, this all comes up against the, the First Amendment. I mean, President Trump, he demanded uh, to to be recognized for his First Amendment right to to speak um, and the fact that he uh, obliquely obliquely suggested that uh, patriots take action has really nothing to do with the January 6th insurrection and social media really is just a free market mechanism for people to communicate. So you and all your regulation, your your libtard regulation is really just trying to take away my First Amendment rights. I love it when you set up straw mans for me to light on fire. I'm very eager to do so in this case. So I want to start with the whole free market argument. That was just, that was, by the way, a brilliant tongue in cheek presentation of the kind of argument you run into. So the reason that I decided in college, very, very long ago, several decades ago, to study economics is that I was a little tired of people on the right wing of, of our political ideology, beating people on the left wing over the head with this idea of economics, free markets. And I really wanted to understand the base of it. On the very first page of any Econ 101 textbook, what you read is that free markets exist. They're on a playing field. Think about it like football. We just finished the Super Bowl. You're on a football field. Now, it's not a plain grassy field that you find in the middle of nowhere. It is a field with lines, with dimensions, and there are rules to the game. The government's role is to set up the playing field so that everyone can have a good game. It is so that everyone can have a fair game. The government's role is not to pick winners and losers. And the place where we can all agree economically, the government should not be getting involved is picking winners and losers. But the government has a duty, an obligation to set up the playing field. So it is a total red herring, and I mean that pun because it's the Russians who are taking advantage of it, to argue, hey, you can't have any rules of the road whatsoever. You can't have any limitations whatsoever. And I would add to that, that what we're really talking about here is steps like demetrification. There is no first amendment right to see how many shares your cat meme got. That is not in the constitution. I am pretty sure James Madison did not put a lot of thought into how many shares you got. I am pretty sure that the, that the founders didn't really care about the rights of bots, 50% of whom, by the way, were responsible for the, the Twitter content around reopening. Remember last spring when there was all this, let's reopen stuff going around social media, 50% of the web traffic, according to MIT researchers, was driven by bots. And who controls most of those bots? Yeah, it's our friends in Russia. So there is absolutely no First Amendment protection, no constitutional protection for bots, for share counts on your cat memes, and for your unfettered ability to share bad information. If you have to put a little bit of human thought, a little bit of friction and sand in the gears into that process, that's a good thing. 
not a bad thing. You mean I can't shout fire in a crowded theater? That is what the Supreme Court would have you believe if you, you know, subscribe to this wacky notion that we still have one of those. So does the First Amendment do does do we have to throw out uh, First Amendment jurisprudence in order to take effective action uh, by the government to deal with the unintended consequences, at least as we know them up to now, of what social media has wrought in our brains? Because social media has taken over our brains and uh, it has taken over our brains and our conduct. Um, it has allowed in in the last month or so the big lie perpetrated by a master manipulator on Twitter, a.k.a. the president of the United States, although he really didn't perform much of that function. But this Twitter, this Twitter bot, this personal Twitter feed of President Trump um, just simply overtook the brains of lots and lots of people. Don't do we have to really dig down into a very comprehensive look at at what these new tools mean for a First Amendment designed to preserve and protect free speech? And it seems like it's a very, very difficult task for government which is not always doesn't always get it right to figure out what regulations really can be the right regulations and set up the right playing field and the right norms and the right guidelines and guardrails to protect us from ourselves. Obviously, as the introduction of the share feature, the retweet feature in the last decade or so shows the law of unintended consequences is alive and well. I agree with the caution that you're expressing about the government taking big, bold moves. So I would suggest two things. First, the government doesn't need to take big, bold moves. The government can take small, measured moves that stay pretty far away from the First Amendment. And everything that I've suggested here, demetrification, getting rid of bots, adding a little bit of friction for bad information, None of those things even come close to the core function, the, the First Amendment related functions of social media platforms. So that's the first thing. But the second thing that I would suggest is you pointed out that social media and the combination of social media and smartphones are hooked directly into our brains. And that is real in a very biological sense, in a measurable sense, the reactions of our brains as, as regulated by our interactions with social media over smartphones are very profound and very real. And so it's akin to saying, if I offered you, hey, Paul, I want to implant a microchip in your brain and it'll allow you to do all kinds of amazing things. You can surf the web. You can see holographic visions of football games. It's great stuff. And by the way, the control of what you see is not necessarily going to be yours. It might be Facebook's. It might be Twitter's. It might be Vladimir Putin's you would not take that proposition. So I suggest 
that we start to think of this not so much as some abstract First Amendment argument, but the very literal argument of we have, to some extent, allowed other forces to implant a microchip in all of our brains. We've signed up for this. We agreed. We signed the iTunes agreement, you know, the terms and conditions. And so the question is, who has control? Now that we've let that cat out of the bag and we're there, who has control of that? Who controls the microchip in our brains? I would argue that it should be humans, American humans, and ourselves, not Russians, bots, and other people. This is very, very bad for me. I have Vladimir Putin here. I'm very unhappy because now I control all, all America. My man, Comrade Trumpeltinsky, is playing golf. He should be he should be living up to his statue here in Moscow. I will find other ways to get around your mean your 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 efforts at cybersecurity. Ha! Huh? I laugh at your cybersecurity. We will find ways around it because my bots are better than your bots, and this is now a battle of the bots. That is tongue in cheek, but also stunningly true, right? It's stunningly true. And so if anything about this discussion has made you uncomfortable, I would just suggest to our listeners that you consider the merits of maybe not letting Mr. Putin, Comrade Putin, control a direct link into your brain. This is Beyond Politics. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host, Matt Robeson. You can find us wherever podcasts are cast and uh, visit us at nhtalkradio.com. Dot com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.